you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Francis Parkman Jr.'s The Oregon Trail. The Oregon Trail was published in 1849. As a book, it started being published in magazines in 1847. Uh, And it's the first major work by the very, very important mid-19th century historian, Francis Parkman, who's most well known for his uh, France and England uh, in, the, in North America. This massive work, seven volumes, uh, just on, on a magna opus of historical research, looking at empire, looking at Native American history, looking at, you know, just the, the whole fate of empire in North America. Such a worthwhile uh text to look at uh and but his first work was actually a memoir of his journeys throughout the the oregon trail and so that's what this book is about i talked a little bit about francis parkman in the last episode and i talked a little bit about the introduction the early chapters of of the book um as last time i'm not going to go sort of chapter by chapter i'm going to just give you the overall feel of the book it is very an episodic story it's you know it's 20 some chapters meant to be read serially serially uh, it was published in the knickerbocker originally and it you know it, in that sense it is a bunch of vignettes of of life not really on the oregon trail uh if you read this thinking you're going to get a book that is documenting the voyage of families the journey of families across north america to california to oregon you're not going to get that you are instead going to be getting uh, basically a, a memoir of of this of Francis Parkman on a hunting expedition in the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains and while he's there he's getting to know Native American people he's deep interest here seems to be especially when you get to the middle part of the of the book you realize his real interest here is to live with to interact with to get to know more about the various Indians peoples of the of the Great Plains and he's telling this story at a time before the conquest. Uh, but, you know, of course, the U.S. owned this territory. You know, the Louisiana Purchase, you know, 1803. So the U.S. had claims to this territory, but it's all essentially still a foreign country uh, for all intents and purposes, governed by Native American communities, often at war with one another, um, you know, having their own ways, ways of life, a diverse diverse systems of government uh and you know the diversity i talked about in the first episode in my first review of the first part of this book you know is really the i kind of focus on the diversity of of different immigrants people who are moving into this frontier and are going to have such a profound effect on the course of empire uh and u.s empire in the in the great west um but you know the native american people are also very diverse and we see different class status we see some communities, some polities, tribes, whatever word you want to use, 
uh, you know, in conflict with one another, some doing better, some marginalized, some impoverished. Um, and it's just a very, very rich source. I mean, I think you could actually dissect this for quite a long time to, you know, document all the different people he runs into, their fates. And I, I think anyone who, who wants to study, wants to know more about these Indian communities in this part of, the, of, of America at this time, you really should at least uh, check this out and, and look into it. <clears throat> so uh, in the first 100 pages or so, we, we, we follow them going all the way to Fort Laramir. So Fort Laramir is way out in Wyoming. It's um, kind of one of the farther out uh, forts kind of in the, in the Rocky Mountains areas. And that becomes their, their base of operations by the end of the first third or so. And we get a nice little chapter of of life in, in, in Fort Laramir. And we get some interesting politics actually when we look, when, when we visit Fort Laramir, um, for instance, the large population of, of what are called French Indians. These, I guess, are, you know, Native Americans of French descent to some degree, uh, results of marriages between French fur traders and, and, and Indians over the years. There's a long history of this population in North America. Uh, Quote, the emigrants, these are, the, of course, the people traveling on the Oregon Trail, felt a violent prejudice against the French Indians, as they sometimes called the trappers and traders. They thought, and with some justice, that these men bore them no goodwill. Many of them were firmly persuaded that the French were instigating the Indians to attack and cut them off. On visiting the encampment, we were at once struck with the extraordinary perplexity and indecision that prevailed among the emigrants. They seemed like men totally out of their element, bewildered and amazed, like a troop of schoolboys lost in the woods. It's impossible to be long among them without being conscious of the high and bold spirit of which most of them were animated. But the forest is the home of the backwoodsmen, end quote. And of course, uh, the, the challenge of being an immigrant. I mean, this really is a different world. I mean, that's the part of the feeling you get in this whole book is that this is, you're not in, like you're not in Kansas anymore, except, except when they're literally in Kansas. It's, you know such a massive change and whatever preparation these immigrants could have, even if it meant, you know, reading a book like this before going, um, you know, it was such a shocking thing to be in this violent and, and world where a world of scarcity, a world of danger, a, a world of, of where really, except for a few forts, you were on your own. Uh, you and your, your, your parties were on your own. So anyways, they are uh, from Lord Fort Laramere. They start to head out searching for Indians. And these Indians are, you know, they want to, I mean, this is Parkman's main journey, main point in this whole mission he's on is he wants to uh, interact with, with these Indians, hunt with them and, and get a, a bit of their life. Because at this time he is preparing his manuscript of on the conspiracy of Pontiac and in a sense he's collecting historical materials for that book while he's doing this and while he's researching it and this this was something he wrote because he had wasn't quite ready to publish um, the conspiracy of Pontiac his first work of of history the first of those histories he writes of the of empire in the in the west now the core group as I talked about last time is Shaw uh, Parkman these are the two who go out there and then they hire uh, these um, these two aides essentially uh, what's her name Chatelon and and 
and Delorie, Delorie, I think his name is, that's how it's pronounced. So these are the two people they hire to be their guides. And then this other guy starts to show up at this part of the story to, to, to go with them, a trader uh, named Renal. And he's a, another very interesting character um, and that they run into. Here's what we learn about him. Uh, quote, a vagrant Indian trader named Renal joined us together with the squall Margot. Her two nephews are Dandy friend the horse and her younger brother the hailstorm. Thus accompanying, we betook ourselves to the prairie, leaving the beating trail and passing o over the desolate plains that flank the bottoms of Laramere Creek. In all Indians and whites, we counted eight men and one woman. So this is going to be the new party that sets out to, to seek out the Indians and take part in these these hunting expeditions is going to dominate so much of the rest of the story and so with, from this point on we start to get a lot more detailed and nuanced descriptions of various um, native american people especially the ogallala um, indians so the ogallala they're they're a, a sub-branch of of the sioux tribe um so the word means scatter or just scatter one uh or just scatter one's own so they're just a, a subgroup of the of the Lakota Plains Indians. Um, but, um, you know, the, the very, very detailed looks at these societies, I, I think, are worth checking out if you're if you want to know more about them. Um, you know, Renal is able to give them a window into some of these communities as well and give Parkman some of the notes he used to describe them. Uh, one thing very noticeable is the is the importance of class among these people. Um, Parkman writes, Moran, like Renal, had not allied himself to an aristocratic circle. His relatives occupied but a contemptible position in Ogallala society. For among these wild democrats of the prairies, as among us, there are virtual distinctions of rank and place, though this great advantage they had over us, that wealth has no part in determining such distinction. Moran's partner was not the most beautiful of her sex, and he had grown exceedingly bad taste to array her in an old calico gown brought from an emigrant woman instead of the neat and graceful tunic of the whitened deer skin wore ordinarily by the squads. The moving spirit of the establishment, in more sense than one, was a hideous old hag of 80. Human imagination never conceived hobgoblin or witch more ugly than she. You could count her ribs through the wrinkles of her leathery skin that covered her. Her withered face more resembled an old skull than the countenance of a living being, even to the hollow darkened sockets at the bottom of which glint her little black eyes. So... It's descriptions like that that just give this book so much, um, so much of its flavor. Uh, we got a lot of little tastes of, of, of Ogallala politics, the way power works in these societies, and the you know Parkman. I wouldn't say he's primarily interested in democracy in any sense. I mean, he is in this democratic age, you know, in the 1840s when democracy is really being established in 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 the U.S. at least for for white men. So of course there is. It's notable to him that class is not based on on wealth among Indians, but you know there's a kind of a almost like a democratic capitalism there, even though the values on which it's based are are a little bit different. Um, but you know he doesn't suggest that these are fully egalitarian societies, but he is struck by how wealth just uh, you know institutionalized class with through property is not something that you see among among these people. It's based on other elements, um, you know. 
Now, one of these powerful figures is someone else who becomes kind of a companion in this part of the story, a man named uh, Moto Tonaka. And he is actually kind of connected to Chatelon. He's, he's the father of Henry Chatelon's squaw, which gives them kind of an, an inside position of, of, of access to, to these Ogallawa. Um, where does he say? Um, Bahota Tanako was in his rude way, was a hero. No chief could vie with him in warlike renown or in power over his people. He had a fearless spirit and a most impetuous and inflexible resolution. His will was law. He was politic, pol or politic and sagacious. And with true Indian craft, he always befriended the whites, knowing well that he might thus reap great advantages for himself and his adherents. Um, so a couple of things there about power. One is is access to Europeans and a good relationship or with the whites, not just Europeans, with the um, white Americans. And, you know, personal relations, politics of personal relations are certainly an element of there as well, as is kind of reputation, his reputation as a warrior. And that's something that that. Parkman sees in many of these um, Indian communities he sees, even though he spends much, most of this middle part of the, of the book with the uh, Ogallalas. So I, I don't know. It's, this book is just so rich. It's, it doesn't really have a very strong like, thesis running through it. Again, it's just a bunch of vignettes of his experience. It's just they're so, it's so well told and, and so, so interesting. It's just very, very rich and, and you know, kind of hard to dissect any kind of one main thread that goes through them all. It's, it's, it's very much like an ethnography at times too, but at sometimes it's like a, a narrative of, of the ecology. But where we start to get, I think one major theme that is here pretty apparently is change in the prairie. And where we see that is like the beginning of chapter 14, this the chapter called the Ogallala Village. And this is, they, they, they seek out these Indians and finally they find them. There's actually a whole chapter called Hunting Indians, which recounts their efforts to try to identify and locate the, the Ogallala um, Village. They eventually find it. And then we get Parkman kind of sitting back and thinking about how himself, and how people like him and how the traders and the immigrants are affecting and shaping lives on the prairie. And I think he's very prescient here. I think much of what he writes seems to hold up. Um, if we look at the, you know, the actual history of a half a century of imperial conquest in, in the West. Right. He starts out the chapter, such a narrative as this is hardly the place for portraying the mental features of the Indians. The same picture slightly changed in shade and coloring would serve with very few exceptions for all the tribes that lie north of the Mexican territories. And with the striking similarity in their modes of thought, the tribes of the lake and ocean shores of the forests and the plains differ greatly in their manner of life. Having been domesticated for several weeks among one of the wildest of the wild hordes that roam over the remoter prairies, I had extraordinary opportunities of observing them. And I flatter myself that a faithful picture of the scenes that pass daily before my eyes may not be devoid of interest or value. These men were thoroughly savage. Neither their manners nor their ideas were in the slightest degree modified by contact with civilization. They knew nothing of the power and real character of the white men, and their children would scream in terror at the sight of me. Their religion, their superstition, and their prejudices were the same, were the same that had been handed down from them from immemorial times. They fought with the same weapons that their fathers fought with them, and wore the same rude garments and skins. 
So we can stop here, and there's a lot to criticize here. Uh, most um, predominantly, he, he deprives pre-contact Indians of having any type, kind of history. And that's just such a common trope in racist, white supremacist dialogue and discourse about Indian people. That somehow, and you still get this, like even the image of the ecological Indian sometimes has this image that, oh, before white people came, Indians lived in harmony with nature, denying them even kind of an environmental history. Right. And he does this here. You, you know, he calls them savage. He, he at one point says they're different, but they're all kind of the same, which, of course, isn't true. And he betrays this almost on every page of this book when he looks at the actual distinctions between these different communities. Um, but, you know, their manners have not been modified by contact with civilization yet. Uh, you know, they really don't. These are groups that are kind of. Um, not as much touched yet. Um, fight with the same weapons, same religion. So there's this ahistoricity to his depiction of them here. But as he goes on, he's aware that this is not going to be the case forever, that this empire is coming and this empire is going to destroy this world he's observing. Quote, great changes are at hand in that region. With the stream of, emigra of emigration to Oregon and California, the buffalo will dwindle away. In a large wandering communities who depend on them for support must be broken and scattered. The Indians will soon be corrupted by the example of the whites, abased with whiskey and overawed by military post, so that within a few years the traveler may pass intolerable security through their country. Its danger and its charm will have disappeared altogether. End quote. And yeah, I, I mean, I think if you take out some of the problematic language here, there is, this is the story of the West, of the taming of the West, of the of the making it an adjunct of American capitalism, making it an extension of American capitalism um, through military conquest, through settlement, through the dispersal, destruction, devastation, wholesale murder of genocide of the people that that live there. And the ecological transformation. Wow. I mean, that's also right in front of Parkman's mind. Um, now, he certainly will go and hunt buffalo. It's part of why he's there. He really wants to experience that part of it. And much of the story is his, his, journey, his actual experience as a hunter. But he's also aware that with white people is going to be the destruction of the buffalo, the changing ecology of this whole part of the world. So I, I think uh, there's moments like that, even though I don't think the book has a very strong overall thesis it is vignettes it is a travel log and that's what you're going to get in this book but there are moments in which he really is prescient about what's going to happen here and maybe he's got the history of the of the communities east of the mississippi to compare to and to and to be a predictive of what he's going to what's going to happen to groups like the ogallala so uh anyways that's most of what i wanted to say about this this Part of the book uh, after uh, settling with the uh, Ogallawa he they have a feast they share speeches it's part of, of uh, diplomacy is you have to give speeches and everyone praises each other's speeches it's it's you know it's all translated by Renal I think Renal is the one who kind of serves as her translator here and it's it's a rather fun moment and then they go off to a hunting camp and they join a hunting camp and they, you know, they 
got what they came there for was to was to hunt with the with the the Sioux. Um, we get some other nice vignettes of of Indian culture here. Um, one of which dealing with torture. Um, if you're kind of into the gruesome aspect of 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 native of kind of Native American culture. Uh, here we have. Uh, yes, he she noticed a great number of scars that appeared on on Kongra Tonga's body. Kongra Tonga was a, the host at the at the village that uh, Parkman and the others had, and he had all these these scars, and he asked about them. Um, no, he didn't ask, but uh, for he understood the origin. He already knew where they came from from his other research. Quote, each of his arms is marked if deeply gashed with a knife at regular intervals, and there were other scars also of different character on the back and other breasts. There were the traces of these formidable tortures, tor formidable tortures, which these Indians, in common with other tribes, inflict on themselves at certain seasons. In part, it may be to gain the glory of courage and endurance, but chiefly as an act of self-sacrifice to secure the favor of the Great Spirit. The scars upon the breast and back are produced by running through the flesh, strong splints of wood, to which ponderous buffalo skulls are fastened by cords of hide. And the wretch runs forward with all strength, assisted by two companions who each take hold of each arm until the flesh tears apart and the heavy loads are left behind. Ah, yeah. Pretty, pretty gruesome stuff here. Um, of course, that's part of, of showing your bravery, showing you as a great warrior hunter and all that. Um, a nice little chapter here called The Trappers, which is about two frontier trappers named Rollo and Seraphin, and they're both are kind of interesting cats. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's going to be it. I think this is going to be a short episode. In fact, uh, maybe the next episode will be short too. It's just, I'm, it's not, it's not a story in the way like a novel is that I can kind of follow the plot very carefully. It's all, it's like many, many different vignettes. In fact, each chapter might have like six or seven or eight different vignettes. And I'm kind of overwhelmed actually and just how much material there is. And, and I can just, I, all I can really do is praise this as a work of ethnography, as a, a document, docu, a travel log, a document of, of a changing world. And, and I think it still has a lot of value for, for that reason. Um, even though it's not really about the Oregon Trail, it's, and, you know, it has problematic language describing Indians, obviously, as you would expect from 19th century writings. But yeah, that, that's, that's going to be it for now. I, I think in the last part, I'm going to try to talk about ecology a little bit. I'm going to see, um, you know, what, what more I can say about it. But um, yeah, one more quick little episode on, on this book, The Oregon Trail. And then I'll jump into really what I'm excited to get into, which is historical um, research, uh, his history of, of the Pontiac Revolt, uh, the conspiracy of the Pontiac, of Pontiac. So anyways, that's it for now. Um, sorry for the short episode. Um, I just didn't have a whole lot to say this time. Um, but next time, maybe I'll have a little bit more. We'll see. So if you have any your own thoughts about the Oregon Trail, let me know. I will... Um, be glad to see your comments and I'll see you next time with my final thoughts about the for coffee and for brains your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub you've got to divide your